This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the network. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Ju Wenjong about his book titled The Dragon Daughter and Other Linland Fairy Tales, published by Princeton University Press in 2022. The book is really cool. It brings together, for the first time, 42 Chinese fairy tales um, that have never really been translated or brought together in this way in English before. Um, They've been selected from more than a thousand that were originally published in the early 20th century under the pseudonyms of Lin Lan and Lady Lin Lan. Um, And because they've not been collected and translated in this way, they've really been quite unknown in the West Um, but now are considered the Brothers Grimm of China. So this book was absolutely fascinating on a lot of levels, and I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Zhu Wenzhong to the podcast. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for making this conversation possible. Could we please start off with you introducing yourself, your academic background a bit, and then explain why you decided to write this book? Uh, Sure. Uh, My name is Zhu Wenzhong, or Zhang Jiwen in Chinese. Uh, I received my PhD in folklore and folk life from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, And I have been teaching as a professor of Chinese studies for 20 years at Willamette University in Oregon in the United States uh, after teaching somewhere else uh, for for about 10 years. Um, My personal interests include uh, making and playing Chinese bamboo flutes, uh, clay flutes, uh, writing with a brush pen or calligraphy, and doing some yard work. Um, my academic interest in folklore uh, began when I was in college in the early eight, 1980s in China. Uh, that interest uh, eventually led me to the folklore program at the University of Pennsylvania in the middle of the uh, 1990s. Um, I've worked on a number of topics, uh, such as uh, rites of passage, uh, folklore and the film, 
and folk narratives. Uh, last year, I published three uh, books on Chinese folklore uh, or folk and fairy tales in particular, uh, and one monograph entitled Oral Traditions in Contemporary China, uh, Healing a Nation. And that uh, was an attempt to interpret Chinese uh, oral traditions uh, as expressions of the cultural self-healing mechanism, which I, I, I termed it, uh, in order to understand the continui continuity of Chinese culture over the past millennium. Um, I also translated a number of uh, Chinese uh, folklore studies into Chinese and into English, uh, trying to bridge folklorists in China and outside China. What brought you then to this particular book? I mean, obviously you have all the skills and all the background to <laughs> uh, successfully collate and translate all of these stories, but what made you decide to focus on this particular collection of stories? Uh, right, sure. Uh, for this book, I think it has direct relation uh, with uh, Professor Jack Zipes, uh, who is a Greek scholar for fairy tales, uh, fairy tale studies. Uh, about 10 years ago, I got to know him, um, and his work in triggered me uh, to explore this area more. Um, about four years ago, I decided to uh, translate his work into Chinese. Uh, as I worked on this, he encouraged me to think about uh, the book series that he edited uh, called Oddly Modern Fairy Tales, uh, published by Princeton University Press. So I, at that time, well, four years ago, I just finished an article on, uh, on a survey of Chinese folklore studies. Uh, so I thought the uh, early 20th century was a typical uh, or special moment, or what I call the unique historical moment. Uh, so I began to look at the, the most striking uh, phenomenon in, uh, during that time uh, in terms of a fairy tale. So I nailed down to uh, Linlan phenomenon, um, which mm. I discuss in the book. Uh, and then I believed uh, and I argued that Ling Lan could be uh, considered uh, as the uh, Grimms of China. So that was the, um, you know, uh, the process to, uh, making this uh, book uh, possible. Amazing. And there's already a number of things in that answer that I'd love to ask you a bit more about. So I'll get straight into it. Um, can you tell us more about what you call the unique historical moment during which these Linlan tales were written? Uh, sure. Um, well, there are a number of uh, uh, factors, but I think uh, these two uh, might be particularly important uh, to understand the, the early 20th century China uh, uh, in general. Uh, the first factor, uh, fact is uh, the establishment of the uh, Republic of China in 1912. Uh, as the end of the previous dynasty, and also as the end of the seventy-year uh, of uh, seventy-year history 
in China being uh, semi-colonized by the European allies in Japan. Um, and that period uh, still has a great impact uh, to the current Chinese mentality, uh, which I sometimes think is a, a kind of an internalized inferiority mentality in Chinese. Um, the second factor, uh, I think, is the, um, uh, the new cultural movement in the late 19-teens and the early 1920s, uh, when China was uh, trying to modernize itself from inside, uh, while st still struggling with the, um, the imperialistic uh, scrambling of China after World War I. For example, um, after World War I, uh, uh, the, for, the previously uh, occupied uh, territory uh, uh, in China by Germany was given to Japan. Uh, and that further um, stimulate the uh, internal, I mean, Chinese internal uh, social uh, uh, turmoil. Uh, so during this time, uh, there was also great effort to uh, seek ways to modernize China to become an independent state as uh, other uh, European countries. Uh, and at that time, uh, there was uh, a bunch of uh, intellectuals who you know, studied in Europe or Japan and learned about how uh, European countries became strong. And so... Brothers Grimm obviously became uh, uh, famous or well known, and they realized this, uh, you know, idea of nationalism, uh, which was uh, particularly shown through uh, folk tales, was uh, was an effective way. So uh, many intellectuals in China began to uh, call upon uh, students and uh, common people to to collect uh, folktales, uh, and that uh, was also the beginning of Chinese folklore studies as a discipline. Um, and during that uh, whole movement, uh, Linlan phenomenon became uh, obvious, uh, and that reflect the social cultural realities and also the ideological trend at that time. So I think mm -hmm. those two factors are special. They definitely seem to be. Um, and that then brings me to sort of the obvious next question is, given all of this context and all these things that are happening, why do you argue that we can think of the Linland Tales as being the Grimms of China? Uh, yeah, that's a big question. Uh, well, I think uh, I try to articulate this argument in uh, in three uh, aspects. Uh, first is in name, the name itself. Uh, Brothers Grimm is a collective name, uh, and the Linlan happens to be a collective name, a pseudonym for a group, small group of editors and publishers. Uh, so that was a similarity uh, I, I connected. And the second is uh, in action. Uh, basically, Lin Lan did what the Grimm's did in Germany, uh, that is, uh, sending out a public call for collecting folktales, uh, emphasizing uh, 
faithful recording of the original telling uh, in terms of uh, preserving language or dialects, um, and then give the voice to the common people, the folk, uh, so that to um, to arouse the uh, national consolidarity. Uh, so in this respect, I think the impact of Lin Lan uh, to folklore studies in China in the past uh, 100 years uh, showed great similarity to uh, Grimm's impact to folklore studies in the world in the past uh, 200 years. Uh, and the third factor uh, aspect, I think, is in spirit, uh, which, you know, uh, we called it uh, the Grimm's spirit. Uh, that is uh, very much the nationalistic uh, uh, spirit. Uh, you know, I try to uh, articulate this uh, in terms of uh, the uh, interpretation of the common people, uh, the common language. Uh, and, oh, I mean, ordinary people and the common language shared by these uh, group of people. Uh, and, and try to arouse uh, morality um, to seek independent and equal nation in the world. Um, for example, uh, what we saw uh, from, a, from a Grimm's uh, impact in two, the past 200 years uh, was not just about the tale itself. It was the spirit behind uh, telling and collecting and publishing these tales. And that spirit um, is clearly shown in Chinese uh, tales uh, from Lin Lan tales and e even today's tales, which I uh, you know put in a different book uh, called the, the Magic Love about early 20th century, uh, 21st century. Uh, so we see the continuity of this uh, uh, idea of seeking uh, national uh, independence or um, self-confidence. Uh, which you know is still uh, highly uh, debated or argued in China uh, as well. Um, but I, I think one thing uh, I would like to add a note here that is I called uh, the Grimms of China Lin Lan um, as a rediscovering Lin Lan. I the reason I say rediscover is that um, when uh, the Lin Lan tales were published in the uh, late 1920s and early 1930s. Uh, they were so popular, so influential, that uh, just at that time, late 1930s, a German scholar uh, named Wolfram Eberhard visited China. Uh, and he was told, look, these are so popular, so fascinating. And he was really fascinated by those. And he immediately translated some of those Linland tales into German. And then in English, uh, well, someone else translated into English. Uh, then that was in 1937. And many of those tales were later put into a different volume named uh, Folk Tales of China. Uh, and that book uh, is still widely used uh, by scholars and general readers. Uh, what I find uh, unfortunate was that uh, uh, 
uh, Wolfram Eberhard, uh, be, you know, being a great scholar whom I respect, um, but he did not provide uh, any um, detailed information about uh, who Lin Lan was uh, or the uh, social impact of Lin Lan phenomenon, but only put uh, br- very brief notes uh, saying, you know, these tales are from Lin Lan collection. These tales from this and that Lin Lan collection. That's it. So that's why I think uh, it's meaningful to uh, call it uh, rediscovering Lin Lan uh, almost 100 years later uh, to understand this uh, social and the literary uh, phenomenon in China. So Wonderful. That- I'm glad you've rediscovered it and shared it with us um, and with this context as well, which I will reassure listeners, um, the book does a really great job of explaining and exploring these socio-historical aspects and tells us about the actual stories, uh, which is a great combination of things to have in one book. And in fact, I'd love for you to sort of bring that combination into the interview as well. Could you maybe introduce us to one of the stories in the book that you think is especially similar or might seem familiar to people who are familiar with Grimm's tales? Uh, Sure. Um, Obviously, the Little Red Riding Hood is... uh... Is something that comes to my mind uh, right away. Uh, uh, Little Red Riding Hood is uh, so popular that uh, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of books uh, about this tale. Um, so I purposely selected two versions uh, from Chinese, from Linlan uh, t- uh, uh, tales. Uh, that is tale 36 and 37 in this book. Um, they are, you know, slightly variants. Um, uh, 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 what I find, well, well, this uh, tail type is uh, common, uh, which, you know, for scholars, we use ATU uh, 333 uh, to mark this tail type. Uh, uh, but the interesting thing is that uh, Chinese uh, uh, versions usually use the title uh, something like um, uh, Old Wolf, Tale or old wolf's wife tale, uh, rather than focusing on the girl, the little red riding hood. Uh, so, so we see great similarity, but some uh, cultural differences. Um, I think that's uh, important to uh, to note that uh, uh, while there are many uh, similarities, uh, which we call the tale type or motif, but. Uh, uh, for folk tale studies, we know that uh, there's uh, also a different opinion uh, that there's no motif. There's only uh, cultural symbols. Uh, that idea is from uh, uh, Professor Danben Amos, uh, who happened to be my advisor as well. Uh, anyway, so we see uh, in this tale... Uh, Something common, something not common. So let me just quickly describe the tale and you can feel uh, the, the similarities and differences. Um, uh, for example, this is tale 37, The Old Wolf's Wife. Um, this is uh, uh, perhaps, I think, the most popular, uh, not the most, one of the most popular uh, versions. Uh, so it's about a woman returning home uh, on her way uh, she met the old wife's wife, the wolf. Um, so the wolf learned through conversation that the woman uh, had the three daughters at home. 
and more details and so on. Uh, so eventually, the wolf uh, ate the woman and dressed like the uh, dressed the woman's clothes and tried to enter the house uh, to eat the three girls, of course. Um, however, in the process, uh, the two elder sisters were alert and did not open the door, but the younger one did. So by the time when they uh, went to bed, the two elder sisters did not want to sleep with the wolf, but the younger one, uh, youngest one did. So uh, late into the night, uh, the two elder sisters uh, heard a noise and realized the, their younger one, younger sister was eaten, uh, eaten up by the old uh, wolf's wife. And then they uh, were so um, smart and they found, ex- found excuses and escaped uh, and eventually triggered the uh, wolf uh, uh, coming to, uh, to, to get them and then eventually they killed the wolf. So that was a typical version in China. Um, they uh, tried to use this tale to to show that, for example, the younger children have to learn from the elders um, in order to survive. And uh, sometimes innocence can be taken advantage of. So uh, that, to me, is, a, is really a, uh, a great similarity to uh, the red, uh, little red, uh, you know, the, the German version uh, or German popular uh, tale uh, of the um, Little Red uh, Riding Hood. Very much so, I think. Um, <laughs> and it's really quite interesting. As you said, it's a very similar story, but told from somewhat of a different perspective, um, which mm-hmm. is a great sort of encapsulation of a lot of the similarities in the stories with the Grimm's tales. Um, but you also talk about and show in the book that it's not just as simple as, oh, here's a Grimm's fairy tale. Let's see if there's something similar in China and go collect it. That's not just what they were doing. There were a lot of other influences in these tales as well, besides from the Grimm's fairy tales. Could you maybe tell us about one or two of these other um, sources of influence? Uh, Sure. Um, Well, uh, as we just mentioned, the nationalistic movement in early uh, 20th century in China was uh, uh, obviously the biggest thing. Um, And that was... uh, also uh, a reflection of the historical reality that uh, since the mid 19th century uh, opium war uh, and until mid 19, uh, 20th century. So for about 100 years, China experienced the wars. And it was uh, just during the 19-teens to 1920s, about 10-year period, uh, that was a relatively uh, peaceful moment in Chinese history. And uh, the phenomenon, the Linlan phenomenon that is collecting and publishing tales, and tales became popularly read, circulated, uh, that really reflected the um, uh, social mentality or cultural mentality of longing for, for peace, uh, for you know, the, the pleasure of telling tales. Uh, besides that, I think uh, the, 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 some other social uh, facts were, were reflected uh, through Linlan phenomenon. That is the call for um, 
children's education or women's education. Uh, for example, in China,、um, that term,、uh, children's education or women's education, were 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 first introduced in, in, in that time、uh, to、uh, call upon、uh, the the society to pay attention to children and women、uh, through tales through literature. So that was a, a really、um, special and important movement in China in general. Um, uh, specifically about folklore studies.、Um, at that time,、uh, as we just mentioned,、uh, in addition to the concept of nation or nationalism,、uh, Chinese intellectuals also introduce、uh, such terms like as a、uh, folklore, uh, folk、uh, fairy tale,、uh, and those. Ter- really new terms.、Um, uh, so that was、uh, something behind the, the phenomenon,、uh, as we now understand or try to interpret uh, uh, the, Gre-、uh, the Brother Grimm's phenomenon. So it was not the tales uh, uh, that are still uh, uh, so unique, but it's the spirit, it's the phenomenon that、uh, influenced our. Our own understanding of ourselves, human culture, and human history, and so on.、Um, I think one more、uh, aspect is、uh, to put this Lindan phenomenon in uh, uh, in uh, in a、uh, perspective of uh, uh, the continuity of uh, Chinese uh, oral traditions. As I just mentioned, some tales can be traced、uh, back to the Early centuries, but some tales are still told today, and that's why I put together a, a different book、uh, on the early twenty-first century、uh, fairy tales,、uh, where we can see a great uh,、um, connection. Um, so again,、uh, we see,、uh, as I just mentioned,、uh, well, scholars use the term motif or tale type. They are so uh, uh, rigid or like a formula,、uh, without showing a、uh, uh, particular cultural uh, symbolic uh, meaning behind those common、uh, factors or motifs.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in that regard, I think、uh, a Lilan phenomenon shows more than the tales、uh, themselves.、Mm. That makes a lot of sense.、Um- To allow our listeners to enjoy a little bit more of the stories that are in the book, might you be able to briefly outline kind of the main points of a story in the book that maybe would be not particularly similar to a common Grimm's fairy tale?、Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, that's、uh, actually one of the purposes for me to put together this book to show some、uh, differences.、Uh, you know.、Uh, Between the European and Chinese uh, tales, uh, obviously there are more, not just one.、Uh, for example, Tale Eleven is about paper bride,、uh, showing you know how gambling and uh, marriage uh, uh, you know related.、Uh, tale Fifteen is about、um, uh, husband and wife from two different worlds, showing Buddhist influence.、Uh, And similarly, tale seventeen, eighteen about the ghost marriage, which is a 
big part in Chinese culture. Uh, but I think uh, maybe Tale Four, Tale Four is uh, is called uh, the Silkworm. Uh, I think I can highlight this tale uh, to say something different from uh, European tales in general. Uh, that is, many ch- Chinese tales um, are. Uh, uh, reflect the historical realities or social realities as well as uh, uh, the, the, the effort of making sense of, of what they have. For example, silk obviously had a, a great impact on Chinese life, uh, you know, not just as a clothes, but as a, as a way of writing histories. Uh, lots of the texts that we have today were written on silk you know, from 2,000 years ago. So this tale four is about, uh, it's a short, but it, it, it has direct origin from the fourth century. So basically it is, it's like this. Um, a girl uh, missed uh, her father very much, uh, who was uh, sent to uh, battle far away. So she, uh, she was jokingly said one day uh, to, uh, to, to, to a horse that they own, uh, saying, Hey, uh, if you can bring my father back, I'll marry you. So the horse heard it, and then he galloped away. And indeed, uh, the horse brought the uh, father back. Uh, But the girl broke her promise um, and said, No, I won't marry you. You are just a horse. Um, So the father... uh, realize that, oh, that's not good. Uh, if you keep the promise, um, you know, you're marrying a horse. If you don't keep promise, that's not morally okay. So the father eventually killed the horse. Uh, and then he skinned the horse and put the skin in the yard to dry it. Uh, now the girl said, okay, so look, you want to marry me? Shame on you. Uh, you are just in a horse. Uh, how can you marry a human, a girl uh, like me? So she, she kicked the skin. But just at that moment, the skin uh, wrapped her and then flew away. So they eventually landed uh, in a tree, a mulberry, a mulberry tree. And so they became the silkworm. Uh, and that is commonly told uh, in China, particularly South China, where silk is produced uh, widely as the origin of a silk worm. So clearly, uh, you can see this tale um, uh, has this, you know, uh, historical dimension as well as social life and Mm -hmm. the attitude toward marriage and uh, uh, keeping promise as an ethical code and so on. So that, I think, is a, a not so common or little thing in uh, Grimm's tales. Thank you for explaining uh, that one, get, introducing that particular story. I didn't know which one you were going to pick when I asked that question. And I find it really interesting that of all the stories um, that I read in the book, that's actually one of the ones that most jumped out at me as being, whoa, I was not expecting that. Okay. Um, so it's actually really interesting that you picked that one out as well, um, well as being great. perhaps the least similar to the fairy tales that I personally happen to be more familiar with, European ones. 
Um, So these tales are obviously really compelling, right? There's a lot of them that are written. um, It has a wide audience across China. And yet, as you said, we had to rediscover them, right? They weren't um, continued in a lot of ways. So Hmm. why did these tales disappear? Uh, yeah, that's a very uh, meaningful word to uh, to say something uh, or f- a tale disappear. Um, I would say that, uh, like many other uh, tales or cultural phenomenon or tradition, that they uh, sometimes seem disappeared or we call the discontinued. Uh, but usually, we have to differentiate the the form uh, from the meaning or the, 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 the idea behind it, the form, the tale. So it's true that uh, uh, Linland tales are not uh, simply retold uh, today or rewritten today, uh, although there are some studies. Uh, so in that sense, um, they are sort of disappeared. Uh, peop- in fact, the most uh, common people in China uh, today uh, would not know uh, who Lin Lan was or is. Um, uh, but one fact uh, we know that uh, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, many of these tales were reprinted in Taiwan. Uh, the reason for that, I think, is uh, partly because of the editor was who was a, a great uh, of folklorist. And the second was that uh, after 1949 or 1950s, uh, mainland China had this uh, 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 character reform, that is uh, uh, the, print, the style of printing and the style of uh, uh, the fonts changed from so-called unsimplified to simplified and printed from left uh, right, left to right and not up and down and so on and so forth. So uh, simple re- reprint uh, was uh, all, was not realistic in mainland China, but it was still continuing in Taiwan in terms of the uh, the unsimplified character and uh, you know the the, the 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 format and so on. So. There are practical reasons, and there were also scholarly uh, recognition of the importance. Um, so it's, it was there, but not known. Uh, but on the other hand, I would say it's not, uh, they, they are not, they, they did not disappear. Uh, they are still told, but usually with the different names, uh, sh- you know, different names of the tale or different names of the characters in the tale. Um, for example, uh, tale 11 uh, in Lin Lan's tale is called um, the, uh, the, the uh, Paper Bright. Uh, and this tale is still told today, which I uh, collected in the uh, early, uh, I mean, in but specifically in the year of 2006 from a storyteller in Northeast China who uh, told the same, uh, almost the same tale, but with a different name uh, using the local terms like a paper maiden, which was translated elsewhere. Um, maiden, um, a paper maiden uh, turned into real uh, wife and so on. 
similarly, uh, let's say tail seven is the pheasant feather cloak. Uh, this tale is also uh, still uh, popular, popularly told, uh, but with a different name, uh, different name. Um, like the cloak of a uh, hundred birds, feather, and so on and so forth. So in that sense, uh, these tales are not uh, disappeared. They are still continuing. So that's why I uh, think my central argument is that um, the vitality of a tale or a tradition uh, lies in its, um, its root. Uh, that is whether this root is, uh, uh, is is settled in the fundamental beliefs and values in the culture. If so, there's a vitality, and it will continue in one way or in one form or another. Uh, otherwise, the tail may really disappear. Uh, so that's uh, what I take for, about this uh, idea. That makes a lot of sense. Um- and so we've covered in uh, some of the aspects of the book, obviously the main arguments, some examples, and I'd love to learn a bit more about kind of the behind the scenes of the creation of this book. And to start off with, one of the most striking things is how you structure this collection of stories. Um, you obviously have numbered them, but it's not a random order or um, structure. In fact, they're in these four categories. Can you maybe explain sort of why you chose to have categories, how you came up with these four categories, why did did you choose to do that for the structure of the book? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks for this question. That actually uh, relate to my overall uh, in academic interest in folklore. Uh, you know, from almost uh, three, four decades I've been working on this. I uh, the central idea for me, uh, being, you know, bicultural, bilingual, I have been looking at, trying to look at the differences and the similarities and to make sense of those things. So when I uh, put together this book, as I just mentioned about four years ago, uh, I, w- I just finished one article in particular about this uh, uh, China phenomenon in, in terms of using folklore for, na- for na- nation building and so on. So uh, when I did this book, I think uh, I uh, thought of the four themes or four sections with the idea that I want to you know, show similarities and the differences. So uh, you can see the first section, which is about love with a fairy, is about differences. And that difference is, uh, the, the most striking difference is uh, uh, the concept and the image of a fairy in Chinese tales uh, versus its image in the uh, in the Grimm's tales or the European tales, uh, as I try to indicate, you know, Chinese fairy doesn't have to be the angel like from a forest, you know, but uh, has a lot of a Chinese notion of a Taoist immortals, uh, which could be male uh, or often male image. Um, so that's uh, something uh, very crucial to me in terms of using the term fairy tale. Uh, so that's one difference. And sec- se- section two, which I titled as a predestined wife, um, 
Well, I wrote elsewhere about this tale, uh, predestined wife in particular. And then I thought predestined love, uh, not just about wife, but what about predestined husband? Uh, and especially Chinese uh, uh, concept influenced by Buddhist idea of this uh, transformation of this life to next life and Taoist idea as well. So I uh, think this section, uh, as I just mentioned, I use some of the ghost tales in Chinese sense, it's ghost tales. It's very much the fairy tale as I uh, try to make sense of it uh, to show the Chinese attitude toward um, uh, uh, love through fairy tale. In other words, uh, we see in Grimm's tale, uh, love is really mutual or erotic love. Uh, uh, but Chinese tales, uh, particularly in this category of uh, predestined love, showing the attitude toward love, not just about the love of the uh, two people, but about the sense of a forming family, uh, marriage, as well as having children. Uh, so, uh, so section one, love with a fairy, and section two, predestined life, I think uh, uh, are meant to show differences, uh, uh, you know, cultural differences, values, and cosmological views, and so on. Uh, then the next two sections, uh, uh, which I call the section three, the love of siblings, and the section four is the other oddly tales. Uh, they are tales that are, are that can be seen as more similar to European tales, um, but still with the differences. Uh, for example, about uh, uh, brothers, many brothers. For example, in Grimm's, there is a uh, six soldiers of fortune or hot six made their way uh, in the world, uh, or six go around the world, uh, so on and so on. But Chinese uh, tale, like uh, um, Tale 32, The Weird Brothers, uh, which about 10 brothers. And then uh, Tale 33, after replacing heart, about three brothers. And so they show some different, uh, um, different uh, uh, expressions of uh, uh, this collectivism. Uh, there's, uh, for example, in the Chinese version, uh, is not just showing the a common theme of collectivism, but show the uh, filial piety of these brothers to their uh, mothers. Uh, so this, they are oddly, but uh, but still culturally normal in Chinese sense. That is the filial piety, you know, is common. So um, that's how I thought. These sections could uh, present uh, bigger uh, differences, uh, you know, between Chinese tales and uh, European or Grimm's tales. I think what they did, in addition to that as well, is also helped um, show the differences between stories when just the details were different. When overall the story was similar, by having them in the same category and often back to back, it made it much easier for the reader to go, "Ooh." that's odd. Okay, that one's been changed. Now I'm thinking about why that detail might be different. Um, so I think kind of grouping them like that as well was a richer reader experience because it helped showcase those similarities and differences really clearly. 
Um, so that was quite interesting. But another question I had similar to that. Oh, 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 sorry, sorry uh, let me just, just add to that part. I think you made a nice point. I, I just want to add another point that is... Uh, Although today we use folk tales to you know, group tales or compare tales, uh, one unique thing I think uh, is that most Chinese tales uh, are not a simple, uh, so-called a simple type, but a, a multiple type. They often have uh, multiple uh, tale types. That is a kind of a characteristic of Chinese tales. Uh, so. For scholars, you know, we, we have to use tale types, but as I try to lay it out at the, at the end of the book, but they are, uh, they could be misguiding to some extent that people, oh, look, only look at the one type. But actually, as you he, as he just made uh, clear, that uh, by looking at the details, we find that many Chinese tales uh, are really mixed of uh, many uh, uh, tale types. Yeah, that's the thing I want to highlight. Thank you. I'm glad uh, I, I'm glad I noticed it. Um, it was really nice. Uh, but that kind of leads me to another question that the book covers, I believe, 42 stories. And yet you've already mentioned in the interview and, of course, in the book that there are thousands of these Linland tales. So how did you choose which to include in the book? Um, yeah, that was... a. Uh, uh... To me, more of a, a technical thing. Uh, as I just mentioned, I first thought about the uh, the themes. Uh, once I had that those ideas, I began to go through all the tales. Uh, yes, as you mentioned, the whole uh, Linlan book series or uh, Linlan uh, series had uh, about thousand tales, and they are grouped into roughly three categories uh, by the publishers then or Linlan. Uh, folk tale, fairy tale, and uh, jokes or anecdotes. Uh, even in the category uh, fairy tale, uh, there were um, or there are 154 tales uh, published in 43 booklets. They were little books, uh, cheap, you know, about 20 tales in one uh, book. And they were published in a kind of a, a rotating um, manner. That is, when they collected some, they thought, okay, they, this could be uh, this category. So they published one volume and so on. So uh, the books uh, published, uh, the tales published are not, uh, you know, categorized nicely as, uh, as some other books. So what I did was I just combed through all the tales and uh, try to select uh, tales that are representative of the themes uh, that I had in mind. And I also try to select uh, uh, among the one theme that, that are representative um, or that are uh, still popular, uh, popularly known or popularly told. Uh, and then specifically, I try to uh, choose those that are not too short or too simple uh, or too um, too plain. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and then lastly, I think uh, by the time I selected 42, I don't know whether that's a magic number, but I know three is a magic number. Um, so the, the, the overall length, it, we're more or less uh, uh, reaching to the book limit. You know, I was told, you know, roughly that long. So uh, 
that was the um, the, the technical process of uh, selecting uh, the tails. Uh, hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, yes. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and I sort of, because obviously stories are obviously something you study, but are something that so many of us just enjoy, I've already asked you to tell us about a story that's most similar to what European um, fairy tale readers might know, and for one that's quite different to what people familiar with European fairy tales might know. Could I ask you, do you have a particular tale in this collection that you think is the most interesting or maybe your favorite? Well, that's really a tough question because uh, all these are favorite to me. Um, uh, for example, uh, Tale 6 is about the flute player. And as, as you mentioned, I happen to be a flute player. So that has a special meaning to me. <laughs> And then uh, Tale 12 is about human bear death for love, which I think is unique uh, by all means, uh, showing, you know, how ugly faces, uh, ugly image could have a warm heart and, and beautiful heart and so on. So that sense of love. And then Tale 15 uh, about the spouses from two worlds, which, as I just mentioned, I wrote earlier about predestined wife or predestined love story. So that's obviously something I um, focus more on. Mm. Um, but I think speaking of a favorite one, um, at, at this time, I think uh, Tale 41 could be my favorite one um, because this tale, well, this tale is uh, 50, 54, uh, is a, uh, no, no, 51. Tale 51, the fairy, uh, the fairy cave. Um, the reason for that is maybe it has a lot to do with my current situation that I'm reaching to certain age, began to you know, understand the sense of time uh, in life and so on. So, um, so the story is is a uh, simple. You know, basically. Uh, he, well, let me just quickly give you a synopsis of this tale. Uh, so, once there uh, there were two cousin brothers uh, who went to uh, fetch water. Uh, some other versions will talk about their um, cutting wood, wood cutters. So they went to the mountains and uh, and began to realize, that, wow, this is a springtime, so beautiful. So they put down their tools and wander around and just follow the path or creating paths in uh, appreciating the beautiful scenes. And then suddenly they came to a, a kind of a cave and saw two uh, fairies or two immortal men, two, uh, two persons uh, playing chess. Quietly, so they try to uh, keep quiet and watching at the distance. They watch them playing, and then they saw a little rabbit jumping back and forth. Each time the, the rabbit jumps, and the grass turned yellow, and then jump the, the rabbit turned to, jumped to the other side, and the grass turned green. So they're so that's so funny. Um, so soon they realize uh, that the fairy uh, the two Two men finished uh, uh, playing chess and noticed their existence. So ask them, hey, what are you doing here? How did you get here? Oh, we were just watching a little bit. And you know. 
And so they said, okay, since you are here, would you like to stay here? Um, they said, no, 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 I, we can't stay. We have to go back at, at home. And they said, okay, uh, so t- take these two sticks. Uh, if you need the help, you know, uh, just let us know. Use these sticks. So the two brothers went back, and they tried to find the place where they dropped their tools, uh, and, and they found it. And then realized th- their uh, wood-cutting uh, axe turned to be uh, ashes. Um and so uh, things decayed, and they were they real they remember when they left this the the, the, the site there was no high trees, but then now they saw so many tall trees and so on. So they wondered, and then they found a way back to village, and they saw some old people sitting there, they're idling there. They ask, uh, "Hey, do you know so and so's house?" Actually, their own house, so they couldn't identify their house. And the old, the, the, the few older people realized, "Hey, how can you mention the name of our great ancestors? That's a humiliation. That's not good. You, uh, you know, the, 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 the bad boys." So they chased them, and the two boys, two uh, cousins, uh, uh, ran. And then realize, okay, oh, we have to run back to the to the cave to to get help from the ferry. But actually, on the way running, they lost their sticks. So when they got to the cave, they they couldn't get in and couldn't get out. So they used their head to hit the, uh, the the cave door and so on. And then they somehow died. Uh, and so. When they died, the the the, the ghosts, the, the gods, uh, you know, showed pity on them, and so they um, they named them um, as two uh, two different gods. For example, um, let me uh, see here. Uh, one brother was named the god of uh, increasing fortune, and the other is uh, named the god of uh, snatching fortune. Uh, from there, uh, these two boys or two gods uh, generated more tales. But what is particularly meaningful for me, as I just mentioned, is that this metaphor of uh, the rotten wood-cutting axe uh, became a, a, an expression for Chinese to, to lament the passing of time, uh, the joy of nature, uh, the pleasure uh, of being in a fairy land, uh, this kind of a distancing one's own existence uh, through fairy tale to to transform into other world. So uh, that metaphor has been used in uh, throughout the centuries in poems, uh, in particular. So, uh, and this tale is now actually turned out to be a national. Uh, you know, China's national intangible cultural heritage. In other words, no. the origin of this tale, or they, they think uh, the origin of this tale, the mountain, the village, is designated as the birth uh, place of this tale. And this tale is is an intangible cultural heritage item. Hmm. So, you know, lots of layers of meanings uh, to this tale. So thank you for explaining that one. There are a lot of layers there. That's really interesting. Um, So as we come towards the end of the interview, I sort of want to kind of come back to your introduction at the beginning and 
it's very clear from your introduction that you've been working on these topics for decades, right? You've written a number of books. You know this really, really well. But was there anything in the process of researching or writing this book that particularly surprised you? Uh, well, the, I would say uh, uh, quite a few things. Uh, first of all, as you mentioned, the people think uh, Lingland tales disappeared, right? That was a, a common uh, understanding. Um, so throughout the process, I think a few things uh, sort of surprised me or made me think more. For example, uh, uh I translate the, the notes in the um, in the Linlan books. Uh, uh, one was particularly uh, impressive. That is uh, uh, the role, the figure named Zhou Zuoren. Uh, Zhou Zuoren uh, was the uh, person who who is believed to be the, uh, the first to introduce the term fairy tale in Chinese to China or even the term folklore into China uh, at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, I think while people know he was so important in general, but specifically, uh, I now think he was part of Linlan. You know, as we said, Linlan is a small group of editors. And I don't think people realize he was part of Linlan as well. So that's something I want to, you know, uh, do more. Um, uh, another thing uh, is about the um, uh, the fact that uh, these tales uh, indicate specific uh, tellers and collectors and the locations of the uh, these tellings, and that made these tales uh, unique. In other words. Uh, most existing collections of tales would give you the impression that these are just traditional. Uh, they are from time of no time, a place of no place, just traditional. So that kind of a blurred, vague uh, stereotype is, is corrected through these tales. Um, and one other thing I would say, uh, for example... Well, this is another thing. Uh, many of these tales, uh, 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 we call the, the media of traditions, the uh, storytellers, collectors, or even publishers, uh, they play, played a crucial role in the continuity of these tales or traditions. But over the time, uh, they, they are forgotten. Uh, for example, one person, uh, Sun Jiaxun, who collected a lot of tales, published And uh, fortunately, we, we know the name there, but we know so little about him uh, afterwards. Uh, and the illustrations, uh, we sort of, uh, some people try to identify a few of those because a few images with uh, uh, the initials uh, of the uh, illustrator. But some others were, did not have. And we have no clue who illustrated those tales. Uh, yes, who illustrated them. I tried to in, include some illustrations. Uh, by the way, they were printed in very um, you know, cheap paper, you know, not color, bright color, you know, 100 years ago. So I, 
obviously the images are not nice, but we can see their creativity through tail uh, uh, through these illustrations. So we don't know their names uh, or tales about them. So that uh, make me think, you know, how do we understand um, this continuity of a tradition in any culture? Who are playing the roles, uh, and how? What's the meaning of identifying uh, authors or tellers? Uh, so, you know, uh, this book series uh, edited by Jack Zipes uh, tried to, you know, nail down all these uh, uh, tellers or collectors, which he did a lot of work on that. Um, but in this case, in Chinese case, I'm thinking of uh, this uh, broader sense. It's really the... Uh, dynamic interaction between the uh, unknown tellers uh, and the collectors, as well as the um, collective, ed- collective efforts from all people who preserve these tales. You know, this individual versus collective, uh, oral versus written, and this whole uh, dynamic uh, make this uh, tradition possible. So this is a really beyond tales, beyond oral tradition. It's really a part of the bigger cultural uh, tradition in a culture. Uh, because we can't isolate the tales from the historical social realities where um, these tales were told. So those are some of the things I learned. And I, as again, specifically, so many little things we don't know. Uh, you know, unlike a, a, a brother, a brother Grimm's tales, now people studied and find the evidences uh, showing who told this and how and each uh, change of each version of the, you know, the, the brother's uh, tales from uh, 12 or 4 to 12, uh, 12, no, 1812 to 1857, you know, the, the, the 50 year history, the change of each version, and the who were behind those things. But regarding Leland, we know almost nothing about those. But thanks details. to your book, we know more than we used to, at least in English speaking audiences. So thank you for that. Um, a little more. Yeah. <laughs> and this is perhaps a cruel question because the book has just come out, but it is out now. People can read it. So, what are you working on now or next? Um, well, that's also a question for me. Uh, I, you know, I just sort of uh, wrapped up a lot of uh, things over the years, decades. Uh, and now it's a uh, time for me to reflect my next step. Uh, uh, I would say in terms of ideas, I want to focus more on the, uh, the things that I talked about in my book. Uh, that is the concept of folkloric identity. Uh, and cultural self-healing mechanism uh, in understanding bigger uh, cultural tradition uh, through folklore. Well, that sounds um, very interesting. So yeah, uh, yeah. Well, specifically, I think I will just continue work on some tales, uh, individual tales. Uh, you know, looking mm. at their culture, meaning, symbols, and so on. Yeah. Well, that sounds very cool. Um, so while you are off exploring all of that. Uh, listeners can read the book if they want to uh, that we've been speaking about this episode as a reminder it's titled The Dragon Daughter and Other Linland Fairy Tales published by Princeton University Press in 2022 thank you very much Dr. Ju Zhang, for being on the podcast thank you thank you for uh, having me <laughs>